Evening, everybody. Thank you to the worship team. It was great. And we say more, Lord, just for something more afterwards. So it is um, my privilege tonight to introduce a new series uh, that we're starting. Uh, it's going through the book of Genesis. And you'll see that our sort of tagline is where faith and life intersect. And I think that speaks very much um, for itself. So what I'm going to be doing tonight is I'm going to preach through the whole book of Genesis. So no, genuinely I am. Um, but it's going to be an introduction. Uh, but what I thought to do um, is to break that into two parts. The first part's very short, about five minutes. And uh, it's a little clip, YouTube clip from the Bible Project. Some of you may be familiar with that. If you ever want to just have a quick visual overview of any of the books of Scripture, go to the Bible Project, YouTube it, uh, and you'll get a, a brilliant overview. It's nice, nicely done from a graphics point of view, quite fun and easy to understand. So we're going to look at the, the, the Bible project's got a, a, a number one and part, part two of Genesis. We're going to just look at part two, because I think that the part one we most of us know and understand, part two is the, the part where we get a little bit lost. So we're going to show that to you, and then after that I'm going to preach through the whole of Genesis. Let's have that. Thanks, Charlene. We're walking through the book of Genesis, which is made up of these two main parts. And the first part begins in the garden, where we watch humanity spiral downward in self-destruction. And it ends in the Tower of Babel, where a rebellious humanity is scattered by God. Then the second part of Genesis zooms in and focuses on just one family. And right in the middle is this story that links the two parts of Genesis together and helps us understand what the whole book is all about. So how do we get from the Tower of Babel to the story here in the middle? Well, after the scattering at Babel, there's this genealogy, and it follows one of the tribes all the way down to this one guy named Abram. You probably know him as Abraham. And God starts making all these promises to Abraham, like he's going to bless him and give him a ton of kids. And he says that through him and his family, all the nations of the earth are now going to find God's blessing. So basically, God is trying to restore humanity back to the goodness of the garden and to his original intentions for the world. So it's like his rescue plan for humanity. And that's why the whole second half of Genesis is about this one family. And so you have, you have Abraham, and then he has a son, Isaac, who has Jacob, and then Jacob has 12 sons. And to each generation, God renews his promise to bless them and all nations through them. So because of this promise to use this family to rescue the world, it's pretty easy to read these stories as examples of how to be a good person. But actually, for the most part, this family is totally dysfunctional. So for example, let's go back to Abraham. This whole story is about God giving him and his wife Sarah a family, but two different times. He basically gives Sarah away to other men by denying that she's even his wife. And then Sarah gets impatient about having a son, and so she makes Abraham sleep with her servant girl, which then causes all of these other problems in the family. So they get really old, and you begin to think that there's no way they're gonna have a kid of their own. But then, miraculously, they do. It's Isaac. And Isaac, he has two sons, Esau and Jacob, and it seems like things are going pretty good. But Jacob, the younger brother wants the family's inheritance, which belongs to Esau, the older brother. So he devises a plan where he's going to steal it from his father, Isaac, who at this point in the story is now old and blind. Which who 
does that horrible stealing from your blind father. Yeah, and then he just takes off. So Jacob goes on from there to have 12 sons, big family. But Jacob loves his 11th son, Joseph, way more than all the others. And so he gives him the special technicolor dream coat. And his brothers, because of this, come to hate him. So much so that they plan on killing him. But they don't. They instead just sell him as a slave down in Egypt. Now, while in Egypt, through this crazy series of events, Joseph goes from being in a prison cell to becoming the second in command there. And so later on, the the whole Middle East falls into this food shortage. And Joseph's brothers, they come down to Egypt looking for food. And then when they get there, who should they find as the ruler of the whole land? It's Joseph, that guy they sold into slavery. But he actually saves them from starving to death. And so here you have it. These are the great grandchildren of Abraham who have done this heinous act to their brother. But God has transformed their evil into something good. And that's exactly what Joseph says here in the last paragraph of the entire book. He says, you guys planned all of this for evil, but God planned it for good to save people's lives. Now these words, they conclude the book because they actually summarize the message of the whole story so far. Humans keep choosing evil, and we are thinking they're they're screwing up God's plan, but he keeps turning their evil back into good. And somehow, He's going to use this family to restore humanity back to the garden. So that's the book of Genesis. But we still don't know how exactly he's going to use this family to bring us back to the garden. Well, yeah, but this is just the first book. So that's what the rest of the Bible sets out to answer. Okay, so that's the message in a summary. I'll expand that a little bit as we go on from here. And just for those who who are used to the word Babel. It's not Babel, it's Babel, we say in South Africa, so we do it a little bit differently. All right, so I wonder why Genesis would be an important book of the Bible, besides it being the first book of the Bible. For me, Genesis is super important because when we read it, we discover something really interesting that's not obvious when you read through the book of of Genesis. And this is it. The battle we are facing as a generation is the battle for truth. What I'm about to say to you tonight is countercultural, and people don't really believe it. Because we're going to talk about creation, we're going to talk about the origin of man, we're going to talk about sin and all of those kinds of things. You all know tonight that if you had to go and talk about that to the majority of your friends, they'll say you're talking rubbish. And everywhere you and I go from our culture, we are hearing another story and another message. And so what Genesis does, it calls us to take a stand on what we believe is the truth. That's one of the things. The second thing you'll discover about Revelation is that when we read it properly, it takes us to an incredibly deep place of worshiping God. Because Genesis begins to tell us things about God that are awesome and amazing. If you go to the, if you go to the book of Revelation, you will discover as we are sitting here tonight, there is extreme worship taking place. And as that worship is taking place, 
There are living creatures around the throne who are bowing down. There are people called elders who are taking crowns that are on their heads. They're placing them at the feet of Jesus. They are bowing down in worship. And I want you to hear what they're saying when they're worshiping. Listen to this. It's in Revelation 4. It's not on the screen. It says, Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne, and they worship him who lives forever and ever. And listen to what they say. You are worthy, our Lord God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they have their being. When we get to know this God that Genesis is talking about, it takes 45 minutes of worship to 24 hours of worship. And I want to say that this evening because sometimes we can kind of get to the place where we've been singing and when we're worshiping, say like 30 minutes has been enough. I want to tell you when you really see him face to face, we will be on our faces before him and we will say glory to the Lamb. Revelation gives us an amazing and an in-depth understanding of why the world is so messed up. I don't know if you like me, but I think as I look around, the world's a really messed up place. I, I think it's tragic that you've got that, that what's happening to children. I think it's tragic how women are being sold into sexual slavery. I think it's tragic when people are getting raped. I think it's tragic when people are getting shot and killed all the, all the time. And Genesis, when you begin to read Genesis, it tells you why we've got so many problems. But the brilliant part of Genesis, when you come to Genesis chapter 50, you discover something. There is hope. There is hope. And you'll discover, despite all the mess, God is still with us. Despite everything that's going on, God's still at work in this broken world. And you'll discover that God has come to save people from the mess all around us. That's the brilliant story of Genesis. Now, Genesis begins by making some quite powerful statements about God uh, and powerful statements about creation. In fact, when you get to the very first verse of Genesis, the Bible starts by saying this, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It doesn't explain anything. It just makes the statement, God created the heavens and the earth. And you know that if you had to go to the majority of schools, and for those of you that are at, un at, or at university, you will know that if you make that statement, people will say, I don't fundamentally don't agree with you. And I want to suggest something to you tonight. I believe that's one of the key strategies of the enemy, and it starts right in Genesis, to get people to believe it's all about a big bang. Because if you don't believe in a God, you will never call on his name and be saved. Genesis wants us to know that God created the heavens and the earth. It's not some kind of a cosmic accident that took place. The very first record that we've got of what God was doing is the fact that he created the planet that we're living in, on. 
and all the galaxies and all the stars that when we look around us. Why did God do that? Why has God created everything? For one reason, He wants you and me to know Him. Do you know that? God desires that we would know Him. God desires a relationship with us. God created us to have a relationship with us. And even if you can't open a Bible, you can go outside tonight and you can look at the stars in the sky and you can know that's the God that we worship. Listen to what the psalmist said. And there are two psalms that speak about that. The one is Psalm 19 and then the longest psalm in the Bible, Psalm 119, but we won't do that tonight. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. Isn't that amazing? There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. And Paul picks up that same theme when he writes to the church in Rome. And he says, since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power, that's what he means by His invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. You know, the only way you could ever know what happened at creation, by the way, you know, is there was nobody around when God created eh? Not We weren't there, and certainly Adam and Eve weren't there at the time. When God began to create, there was nobody there except God. And the only way that we can possibly know what happened is because God revealed it to us. That's, that's what Genesis is all about. And over the decades, that's what people have believed. They've believed by faith that God created the heavens and the earth. That's Hebrews 11. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command. And then listen to this. So that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. Now, interesting thing, if you go to the book of Acts in chapter 4, you'll discover there that the early believers are praying for boldness. They are praying for God to, to, to do signs and wonders and miracles. And they are praying with confidence and they're praying with boldness and listen to what they say when they pray. Sovereign Lord, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Do you know why they were confident and bold? Because when they prayed to God, they didn't pray to a God down here. They prayed to the one who's created the heavens and the earth. Guys, that's what gives us boldness in prayer. We are not just speaking to a figment of our imagination. We're not just speaking to this idea of somebody sitting on the throne. We are speaking to the one who spoke a word and the heavens were created. Friends, that gives me boldness when I pray. Somebody say amen somewhere along the line. Must be life out there somewhere. But Genesis also, it, it, it makes quite a bold statement about the origin of the human race. Listen to what Genesis says. So God created man in his own image. 
In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, what's interesting? I'm going to do this. I know this might sound a bit childish to you. Put your hand on your shoulder tonight. Just your one hand on your shoulder. I want to remind you tonight that everybody here is created in the image of God. Every one of you. You're created in the image of God. And sometimes we need to deal with some of the lies of the devil. And we need to stop and say, I am created in the image of God. Do you know that the peak of God's creation wasn't the animals or the trees? It was you. And it was me. We are uniquely created in the image of God. We reflect the image of God. You know what I... Well, let me read it to you. It's, it says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Psalm 139, listen to this. You created my innermost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you. For I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. When did you last praise God for the way that he made you? Isn't that amazing? You know what it made me realize? That irrespective of our upbringing, irrespective of whether you were poor, irrespective of whether you are rich, male or female, young or old, every one of us is created in the image of God. Nothing can destroy that, obviously, except sin. Then Genesis states that all the brokenness and the injustice, and if I can use this term, diabolical behavior we see all around us, you know, it can be traced back to one thing. And I wonder if you know what that one thing is. Here it is. It's not just that Adam and Eve sinned. It's that Adam and Eve believed a lie. And I want to say that tonight because when people believe lies, they disobey God. And the Bible is saying to us very clearly that all of the tragic stuff that's happening around about us is because there was a talking serpent in the book of Genesis. It says, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He was more crafty. Say that with me. He was more crafty than any of the wild animals. And he said to the woman, listen to what he said. Did God really say that you mustn't eat from any tree in the garden? God said nothing like that, by the way. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden. And you mustn't touch it or you will die. And the serpent's comeback is, you will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. And here was his lie. I want you to hear it. There are no consequences to sin. You can get away with it. And you know what? We still believe that. Otherwise, none of us would sin. Everybody that sins is convinced they're going to get away with it. 
That's his life. You disobey God, you do your own thing, you make your own choices, and you can get away with it. Nothing will happen. That's the lie. Right there. And you know, it's an amazing thing because Jesus himself realizes that because Jesus was able to read the book of Genesis. Do you know that? That's how he learned about what happened, like you and I do. He read the book. And so when Jesus is tempted and when Jesus is in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 4, and the devil starts to tempt him and say, if you are the Son of God, Jesus says this, very simple. And it's what you and I need to say as well when we're tempted. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word. That's the comeback. When the enemy starts his rubbish and his lies, we come back with God has said. And that's the end of the story. Genesis also tells us because Adam and Eve disobeyed God, something so serious came into effect that only God himself one day would be able to do anything about it. As a result of of Adam and Eve's sin, a curse is pronounced that had huge consequences, and we're still seeing them today. It had consequences for our relationship with God. Adam and Eve were banned from the garden, from having this amazing relationship where where they would meet with God in the cool of the evening and they'd speak face to face with God. They're now banned. And sin still breaks that relationship. It's damaged marriage. You know why marriages are struggling? Because of the consequences of sin. It affected childbirth. The Bible says there is even more pain in childbirth than there should have been because of the curse, because of the consequences. It affected man's work. There's now pain and sweat and toil. What was meant to be pleasurable now becomes painful. All of these things begin to happen. So the Lord God said to the serpent, that affected everything, even the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers and he will crush your head but, and you will strike his heel. And to the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. There's this kind of conflict that's going, taking place. To Adam, he says, because you've listened to your wife and you ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat all the days of your life. You know the only reason God ever put limitations on the tree in the middle of the garden is he didn't want us to go through all the stuff that we're going through today. God does not rob us of our joy. He wants to protect our joy. What I love about Genesis, there's a couple of of truths there that we need to take hold of, but Genesis tells us there's coming a day when Satan is going to be crushed, guys. He's going to be crushed. When God spoke to the serpent, he said, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head, and you'll strike his heel. And when Jesus dies on the cross, this is what begins to happen. 
Colossians tells us, having disarmed the powers, the authorities, he makes a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them on the cross. Paul, as he's writing to the Roman church, he says to the believers, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Friends, let's live like that. God's going to crush him. This is not a myth about a talking snake. This is the first description we're given of Satan and his attempts to deceive mankind and what God is going to do about that. Then Genesis goes on. You saw that on that video clip. What happens when sin begins to spread? People start to murder one another. And Genesis chapter 4 talks about the way that Cain killed his own brother Abel. Takes him out into a field, says, I want to have a discussion with you. And then he kills his brother. And we see, begin to see the consequences as sin begins to spread. And eventually things become so bad and so devastating that God decides to destroy mankind through a devastating flood. I want to pause here for a minute. If you ever thought that God doesn't get angry about sin, this is the one verse you need to read a few times. God got to the place, the Bible tells us, where he was sorry that he had created mankind because sin started to become so bad. And I sometimes wonder if we're not right back in that same place all over again. And I I just, you know, when you read the Bible and if you imagine yourself being there, and imagine, because you know that one guy got saved and his family got saved. Noah got saved through that. But I want you to imagine these guys on this boat, the boat is sealed up. And the rain comes. And it pours. And it's more rain and more rain. And you hear people screaming. And they are screaming, help. They are screaming because they're drowning. They are screaming because they are dying. And you maybe look out of your boat and you look and you see animals drowning in their thousands across the planet. Friends, that's what happens when there's sin. It's devastating. And I want to just make a point of that because God says there's coming a day again when he will judge the world by that man Christ Jesus. He's going to judge God in his grace, and let me say in his grace, put a rainbow in the sky, and he said, I'll never destroy the earth again until. This time he said it'll be by fire. And that's why I'm passionate that people come to know the Lord and get saved, because I don't want to see one person going to hell and crying out for the rest of their life, somebody please save me. Because that's the reason we share Jesus with people. He's the door. He's the ark. If people will believe him like Noah believed God, they can be saved. And and there's a brilliant side of the story. Jesus came to save. Jesus died on the cross in our place. But it doesn't make a lot of sense until you realize God is also God of wrath. And, And his grace he's holding back because he wants as many people to be saved as possible. But there will come a day when Jesus comes again, and it will be a judgment day. There's a movie called that, Judgment Day. And when judgment day comes, I want to tell you something about that. There is no second chance. Isn't it going back? Now I need to just find my place again. 
Genesis tells us that despite this flood that happened where people were destroyed, that God's not finished, and I'm so glad he's not finished because I wouldn't be here tonight if God had finished it there. And what God does is he appears to a man by the name of Abraham. And Abraham's a brilliant guy because Abraham believes what God says. That's one of the key things about Abraham. He's called the, the father of faith. But fundamentally, he's one of those people who chose to believe what God said. And, and, and God tells Abraham, it's my intention, it's my plan. I'm going to bless all the nations of the world through you. Now, if you think that's a phenomenal promise made to a guy thousands and thousands and thousands years of years ago, who knew nothing about what we know today, you must know that's amazing to believe God. And yet Abraham chooses to believe God. And that's what, and you may hear this when, it's, when we preach through, it's called the Abrahamic covenant. God makes a covenant. In other words, he makes a promise to Abraham that he will honor and he will uphold. And when you get to Ephesians chapter 3, you will discover that's exactly what happens when you come to Christ. Let, let me read it to you in case you don't believe me. It says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Friends, if you know Jesus, you're blessed. Blessing isn't to have a nice car and a nice house. A real blessing is to know Jesus. That's real blessing. And that's another lie of the devil. The devil's trying to sell us all kinds of stuff and saying, you'll be happy if you have and you have and you have. May I say to you, you won't be happy if you have and have and have. The only place you'll find true joy is when you know Jesus and you begin to experience the blessing of God in your life. Amen. Can you say amen? Woo! Excuse me. Then Genesis shows us that there's a line of people through whom God would continue to fulfill what he said. That promise of blessing all the nations, God uniquely chooses people. He elects people, if I can use that word, through whom he's going to continue to fulfill what he said. And the first guy's name is Abraham. You saw him on the screen. Then his son Isaac. And then Jacob and his 12 sons. And then, and this is what I love about God. None of these guys are perfect. Did you notice that? You notice, even though Abraham believes God, he's like, he gets to Pharaoh and he lies about his wife because he's scared of what's going to happen. He says, that's my sister. So what does Pharaoh do? He puts his wife, by the way, this is Abraham's wife, into his harem. <laughs> Dinkum. This is the man who's called of God. And then God makes them a promise they're going to have a child. And she eventually comes and says, look, it's not happening through me. That's pretty obvious. Maybe you must go and sleep with my servant. And she tells her husband to go and sleep with her servant. I mean, that's like wild stuff. I think so anyway. Maybe you don't. But the amazing thing about it all, God remains faithful to his word. You remember there's a verse that says, even though we are faithless, God remains faithful. I mean, think about it. How in the world is Sarah going to have a baby 
at 100 years old. Now, even in those days, 100 years old was quite old. It's much older today. You saw with the hollow cheeks and all of that on the picture. How is she going to have a baby? I'll tell you how. Because God is able and God is faithful. How in the world is a scaniver and a deceiver like Jacob going to continue God's promise? I'll tell you how. Because a faithful God met with that guy, Jacob, one day and turned his life upside down. That's how. How is it possible that when, when Joseph's brothers sell him into slavery and just goes from bad to worse, and you say, God, how is this going to happen? You've got these terrible sons. They're, they're, they're selling their brother into slavery, and things are getting worse and worse and worse for him. How is it going to happen? I'll tell you, because God is faithful. The only reason Joseph ends up to be the second most powerful man in Egypt is because God is faithful and God's got a plan. And friends, I don't, excuse me using the phrase, I don't care how bad it's got. God's always got a plan. And God's able to fulfill his plan. That's the story of Genesis. That's why Joseph said, and you, you remember the words over there, you intended it for evil. But God meant it good for the saving of many lives. Man, isn't that great? When we mess up and when people mess up, God is able to turn that around and save even the worst of situations. And I finish with this one verse. Maybe we can put it up the next slide, please. And we know that in all things, God is at work for the good of them who love Him and who are called according to His purposes. And I want to say to you, all of you here tonight, in Christ, God's got a plan for you. You're not a lost cause, and you're not lost along the way. In Jesus, God's got a plan for you. And I want to say, God's plan is good. And God's got a purpose for our lives. And God's come to save us from the lies and deception of the enemy. He's come to save us from the curse. He's come to save us from all those things that go with the mess around us. Jesus came to save us. And you can experience God's good and I can experience God's good because of Jesus. That's the story of Genesis. You meant it for evil. Joseph says to his brothers, but God meant it for good, for the saving of many lives. And I just praise God for Romans 28 tonight. God is at work in all things for the good of them who love him and who are called according to his purposes. Amen. Amen. I'm done. Where's Karen? Karen, you better come and share. share. Karen had a word. Early on, I wasn't sure if it was for before now, but I think it's more appropriate now. Stu, can we have your team back on the stage? And I want us just to take some time to worship. I'd love you this evening as you're worshiping to think of who you're worshiping tonight.